This is Nutshell Politics, a show where we discuss what you need to know about current events, international relations, political conflict, and my favorite topic of discussion, terrorism. The mainstream media isn't always the best at reporting on international events. They often lack depth, context, and understanding, a problem unfortunately driven by ratings. But here, on Nutshell Politics, I seek to fill those gaps, and most importantly, to make sure you know what's actually going on out there. So let's dive in. Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Nutshell Politics. I'm your ruggedly handsome host, Justin Kenny, and I'm excited to start a little bit of a mini-series with you guys. I don't know if I'll do it every week for the next few or if I'll take a break in between, but we're going to be covering some of the broad theoretical perspectives or grand theories of international relations. In particular, I want to touch on two, and I may add a third in at the end, realism and liberal institutionalism. I may throw in social constructivism or maybe even some of the other smaller ones too, but realism and liberal institutionalism are two of the big grand theories that you see in international relations. So I think it's probably a bit of an understatement to kick things off by saying that people view the world in very different ways. This probably seems obvious. Everybody from political scientists to analysts to policymakers in government to the average person on the street, we all view the world differently. But there are a couple of these grand theories out there uh, where their entire purpose is to try to explain how the world is structured and how it operates. And so the first one I want to touch on, and we'll do this today and the next time we'll do a different theory, is realism. Now, realist thought really reigns supreme in political science and for foreign policymakers and those type of things during the Cold War era. During this time period, we had a lot of the socialism versus capitalism power struggle. There was what was seen as mutually assured destruction from a nuclear war constantly on the horizon. You know, war seemed inevitable. It's right around the corner. And so realism kind of fits right into this context because realism is is an approach that really emphasizes a couple things. Uh, First, it emphasizes the role of the nation state or the the state. Uh, It really focuses on states as being either the only or the most important actors. So they don't really put a whole lot of stock in things like international institutions like the UN or non-state groups like terrorist groups. Uh, So they really focus on the role of the nation state. And in particular, they, they make this assumption that all nation states are motivated by national interests, self-interest, I should say. And sometimes they get you know uh, disguised as some sort of a moral concern and making moral arguments. But at the end of the day, at the fundamental level, all states are motivated by their national self-interest. All states are seeking to preserve themselves. So survival would be the first and then to maximize their overall power. And the reason for this is twofold, and you'll find realism split into two categories here. Uh, You'll see biological realists. Uh, This was probably the first one. It goes back all the way to, say, Machiavelli and some of these ancient uh, philosophers on realism, uh, or at least the kind of the precursors of realist thought. But biological realists really heavily focus on the idea of human nature. And they basically say that human nature is fixed or constant. That that is that all people possess this same human nature within themselves. It doesn't change person to person. doesn't change over time. And further, this human nature is really focused on things like pride, lust, a quest for glory, power. And so one of IR's 
three like big realist principles is this idea of power politics that everything at the state level is driven by a quest for power and this is gets back to a kind of a root of human nature now the other side of this is what's called structural realism and this is where you see a lot more of the realist today but it's really focused on the idea that the world is structured in such a way that there is international anarchy now what do i mean by that Anarchy is this concept of having no, no government, no order to the world, chaotic, that type of thing. But when it comes to political science, what we're talking about is that there is no world government. That is, there is no government or governing body or anything that is over states. And even if it seems like you do, like say the, the UN or something like that, at the end of the day, it says states are the ones that have the real power. They give it to this institution temporarily, but at the end of the day, the power still resides within them. So there's nothing above the states. And this gets important when it comes to things like conflict, because if there's conflict between two states, there's no governing body above them to mediate that conflict, at least in an um, authoritative sense. Just as an example, let's take it down to the individual level for a minute. If you are you know, a person and you have a conflict with another person, you can take that to court. And the court's ruling is authoritative and binding. You know, you can have like binding mediation. It could be something like a lawsuit, but it's it's authoritative. You can't really break that once that rule has been made because this governing body that you are under helps to ensure that, to protect their decisions, and to enforce anything, especially if there's penalties or punishments involved. But at the international level, we don't really have that. If two states have a problem, you know, there are some mediation courts out there, but there's nothing really to enforce those decisions. They're not really considered binding. Even when states come together and try to claim they're binding, you know, we've seen cases where states back out of it. Uh, a classic example of this is with the NPT Treaty, the Treaty on the Non-Proliferation of Nuclear Weapons. This was a treaty that a lot of different countries signed on to. There's a few that haven't. But in particular, at least for this topic, North Korea is famously a signatory of the treaty. And then they backed out of the treaty and started developing their own nuclear weapons. And even though this treaty was supposed to be kind of a, a binding agreement between parties, there was no real punishment for them. You know, individual states have tried to issue sanctions and things like that, but the, the treaty itself was, was pretty much unable to do much towards North Korea. And it's raised some questions about what, what would happen if another state tried to back out. And so this concept of anarchy really drives a lot of realism. It actually drives some of these other theories too, but it's really central to realist philosophy because it, it basically says that states are at the top of the pyramid. States have individual sovereignty, the, the power to kind of control and rule themselves within their borders. And there is nothing higher than that. There's no law that is above that, uh, that has any sort of real binding authority. And so political realists really play heavily on these two kind of concepts of human nature and anarchy. And this goes all the way back. I mean, as I said, Machiavelli has some thoughts on this, but the overall international structure was really established in the 1600s with the Treaty of Westphalia. This was 1648. And this treaty is what created the system that's really based around the sovereignty of the nation state, putting the sovereignty of the state at the top of the pyramid. And then further it goes on. And so that means anarchy is kind of the principal force that really shapes motives and actions of states. Because if there is no enforcer above you, you're forced to pursue your own self-interest because you can't rely on some sort of governing body above you to 
to help enforce your, your interests or to help you if something doesn't go right. But before we get too far down that road, let's, let's back up and do a little bit of history. As I mentioned, Machiavelli had some of these thoughts, but I'm going to start in 17th century England. There was a man by the name of Thomas Hobbes. You've probably heard of him, fairly famous for other reasons too. But he contributed to realist thought by basically making the human nature argument. He says the natural condition of man, of mankind, is in a state of war. And obviously that's a little bit of a metaphor, but he says human beings are naturally driven by competition. We like to compete. Uh, we're naturally driven by glory. We want power. We want success. And he says this is, this is important because while every individual person has kind of a natural equality, and by that he means that no, no person out there is any less of a person, right? We're all on equal footing as people. But because of that equality, we're kind of forced to structure ourselves and society through this competition. And so what then structures society is the unequal distribution of resources. And so you can apply this to an international level and say that all states are on equal playing field uh, in terms of their value as a state. You know, no one state is any more of a state or less of a state than any others. Just, just because you're bigger or smaller or have more resources or more people doesn't make you more of a state, right? China is no more of a state than uh, Luxembourg or Liechtenstein. The Congo is no less of a state than the United States just because of size or capabilities. But those capabilities are what help structure the world. And so countries that kind of become the more powerful countries are that way because of this uneven distribution of resources. And so because of this, and then because states are under this uh, reign of anarchy, this leads to what Hobbes calls inescapable and universal danger. Because you know the threat of force is constant. You can never be 100% sure what, you're, what these other states are trying to do because they have to pursue their self-interest as well. And so he says this conflict that you see in human nature, where we're driven by competition and wanting to be better, also gets translated to the state level. And so he says conflict is inevitable and therefore war itself is also inevitable. It doesn't mean you're always going to be a war at any given particular moment in time, but he says war is inevitable because you're constantly driven by this conflict. And further, because you know you don't really understand what other states are trying to do, they're driven by their self-interest, there's this constant uncertainty about the motives of others. And so Hobbes in particular, but realists as a whole, look at things like alliances as pretty flimsy because allies, according to Hobbes and most realists, are considered just potential rivals. So there's no such thing as an ally, like a true ally that you can trust on and rely on for, you know, for a long time. They're just potential rivals that you're not fighting with at that moment. And so this is a fairly bleak perspective that Hobbes puts forward. But realists kind of look at it and say, you know, this is just how the world is. This is just what human nature is. There's nothing we can do about it. It may be bleak. It may be depressing to think that, that this is all what, that people are just driven by selfishness and power and this quest for glory. But that's just how it is. And that's how we need to understand the world so that we can move forward with it. Move forward, you know, a couple centuries and we get a guy by the name of Hans Morgenthau. Now, Morgenthau did a lot of his work uh, on realism in the 1950s and 60s. He's actually was an American refugee from Germany during this time period. And he is probably the single most important proponent of realism, at least up until the next name I mentioned. So he's bare minimum, probably second on the list. And so he really codifies a lot of realist thought into several principles. I'm going to cover a few of them. There's a six. I'm not going to get to all of them. But he, he codifies them and says, this is what realism is. 
Uh, and then he has a few conclusions from that, which I'll touch on in a second. So Morgenthau says things like, politics is governed by objective laws rooted in human nature. We've already kind of covered that. He says, interest is defined in terms of power. Now, I hinted at this at the beginning, but generally speaking, to a realist, national interest is defined by power. And so national power then has some sort of absolute meaning. You can define it in terms of military strength. That's traditionally military. You can also throw in things like economic strength, political strength, cultural strength. But for a realist, power is what drives them. And your self-interest is defined in terms of power. Further, for a realist, this power is defined relatively. And by that, I mean, we're not really talking about how much power you have in an absolute sense, but it's all how much power you have relative to others. So as long as you have more than the next guy or the next country, you're okay. It doesn't really matter how much you have total. And so realism is really driven by this relative perspective too, that it's, it's not about how much power you have, but it's about how much you have relative to the next person, because that's how the world is structured by this unequal, uh, sorry, unequal distribution of power. And this also ties back into the idea of anarchy because without some sort of government above you, all states have to rely upon their own resources, their own power sources, to secure their interests, to enforce any sort of agreements or alliances they may have, uh, to maintain any sort of order, both within their country but also with the countries surrounding them and on the international level. And there's no authority above that that they can rely on, so it's all internal to them. And I should add further too here that for a realist, they don't want anything higher than them. You know, they they refuse to recognize anything greater than state sovereignty. State sovereignty is the highest form of international structure that, that exists. Uh, so a political realist would really kind of fear any sort of authority that takes away power from the state. And so a lot of realists you'll find aren't big fans of things like the UN, unless they see that their country is somehow still pursuing their self-interest through it, you know, they're using it as a tool or something to that effect. And most realists will say that the UN and these other organizations are really just tools. They don't have power in and of themselves, but they're tools that the stronger states use. But a political realist is not a big fan of those type of institutions because, again, it, it kind of saps and pulls away the sovereignty of the state. But moving back to Morgenthau for a minute, a couple of his other principles He's, he makes this argument that you can't really apply any sort of moral barometer to states. You know, states are just pursuing self-interest. They're not about being good states or bad states. You can't apply universal moral principles to any state action. Now, you can apply them to individuals. Individuals can do good or do bad, but a state cannot be viewed in moral terms to Morgenthau. And Morgenthau then kind of takes some of these principles, and again, I skipped over a couple of them for the sake of time, but he makes this argument that because human nature is unchanging, and because anarchy as an international structure and order is unchanging, therefore state interests and state relations are also unchanging. And he would then make the argument that if, if human nature is constant and everybody has the same, same kind of human nature, then who the individual leader is of a country at any given point doesn't make a whole lot of difference on the international stage. And he would point to things even here in the United States. You know, we look at presidents from one to another. Now we have Donald Trump, previously Barack Obama, previously George Bush, and so on going back. But there's actually kind of a, a running joke almost in political science that says at the international foreign policy level, don't actually see much variation president to president. George Bush's foreign policy was very similar to Obama's. 
We do see some variation domestically, obviously, and personality-wise, and they may even pursue those interests slightly differently. But the argument is that foreign policy doesn't really change president to president very much. Now, again, we, we see slight variations, and that may be due to other outside factors, but Morgenthau and, as I'll mention in a minute, Walt and some of these other realists basically argue that individual leaders don't change their foreign policy preference very much because, again, human nature is unchanging and the structure of anarchy is unchanging. And we do tend to see this to an extent. People talk about how much different Obama was than, say, Bush before him. But if you start actually looking at like the differences, the grand majority of those differences were domestic issues or domestic policies. When it came to foreign policy, there were very few differences. I'm not saying there were none, but there were very, very few. And there were um, most of those differences were in the pursuit of goals, like how they went about them, not in what those goals or uh, interests were. And so that, that's Morgenthau. Moving ahead another couple of decades, you have another guy by the name of Kenneth Waltz. And so he is probably the single most important uh, realist thinker. He wrote the, probably the most influential book in all of international relations and certainly in realism. It's the central text or what you would consider a neo-realist. But he focuses very heavily on the idea of the structural realism, on the anarchy. And he basically says that order that you do see in international relations, because we, we don't really see all countries on even footing, he says it arises from these interactions of political actors. You know, each state is separate, they're autonomous, they're equal, at least on kind of a formal level. And the differences between states are not in function or goal, but of capability. And so he really focuses on this idea that resources, and, uh, and that doesn't mean like natural resources necessarily, it can, but it also means things like human resources. Uh, that is what orders the world, not countries' goals or nature of them or any sort of outside in, uh, structure that puts them into their place, but capability. And so this distribution of capabilities across the world is what orders international society, specifically of the great powers. And so you see things here like polarity. Uh, it gets big into the idea of, do we live in a bipolar world with two powers like we did during the Cold War? Are we in a multipolar world like we saw during, or I say pre-World Wars, when there were multiple major powers? Are we a, a monopolar, unipolar world or a hegemonic world? All of those are the same term for one power like we were right at the end of the Cold War. Soviet Union fell, the United States was all that's left. So the, this idea of polarity, you know, where are these capabilities located in the world and how are they uh, ordered? And as realism has really developed over the years through Morgenthau and Waltz and quite a few others as well, Mearsheimer and some of these other big names, we've seen realism kind of come up with a few ways to explain themselves. One of the most common is Prisoner's Dilemma. This is a very realist paradigm. You've probably heard of the Prisoner's Dilemma game. I actually run a version of this in some of my classes that I teach at the, uh, the university where I work. And so Prisoner's Dilemma is this idea that shows every interaction we have is really marked by insecurity. It's marked by competition and conflict even when there is incentive to cooperate. The famous prisoner's dilemma is when you have two prisoners that have taken, been taken in by police and they're put in separate rooms and questioned separately and you try to get them to flip on each other. And there is this big incentive for them each to cooperate with each other, not with the police, to cooperate with each other and stay silent. And yet, there is still incentive individually for each one to defect. And so this concept gets played out in the international level too when you have two states interacting. 
there may be incentive for both of them to cooperate peacefully with each other, but individually, there is still always this kind of thing in the back of your mind where there, you feel insecure, uh, you're, you can't really trust the other side, or you feel like you can't trust them, and this drives a lot of conflict, and so a lot of times you'll see this incentive to what we call defect, or to turn on the other state, and it actually ends up causing a suboptimal outcome. Because, as I mentioned, the optimal one, at least for the whole system, would be both cooperating, but individually it may be to defect. And so you have a lot of these kind of paradigms that are built up. Prisoner's Dilemma is just the most famous, but there's a lot of others too. And so all of these things kind of lead to what I would consider the four main propositions of realism. So if you get nothing else from this episode of the podcast, I want you to remember these four things. And I've already touched on them individually, but let's talk about them all a little bit more, at least mention them. First, as I mentioned, primarily the international system is anarchic. No state exists above any other formally. And this leads to constant antagonism because you have to look out for your own self-interest first. Second, sovereign states are the most important actors. A true realist, you know, full, full on 100% hardcore realist might say that sovereign states are the only actors that matter. We've seen a little bit of softening on that recently from, from realists. They just say they're the most important ones. But either way, they really kind of dismiss things like the UN, the EU, uh, terrorist groups, lobbying groups, those type of things. And so this kind of leads into then third. All states are then unitary, rational actors that pursue self-interest. So we touched, we touched on the self-interest part. Rational I think that makes a lot of sense. It just means that they have goals and they take steps to pursue those goals in some, some sort of logical fashion. It doesn't mean it has to make sense to everybody. You could still argue that, say, North Korea has goals and they are pursuing them rationally, even if we don't necessarily agree with the method that he is taking or think it makes sense to us. But it, as long as it makes sense to him, we treat it as rationally. And then all states are unitary. And this is the same concept as states being the most important, but applied at the domestic level, that states act as one body. There are, are no internal factors that are dividing the state where you have half the state pursuing one goal and half the state pursuing the other on the international level. You know, there may be internal conflict, but at the end of the day, a realist would say that state still acts in a unitary fashion. And then fourth, the primary concern of all states is survival. And this, I think, is, is important. We talked about the idea of power, but you can't have power without survival. So survival first leads to quest for power. And then because of anarchy and human nature, this drives antagonism. Uh, states are self-interested, so they are also antagonistic. And this leads to this idea of constant war, constant conflict, and then war being inevitable. And so if you are a realist, you're very concerned about things like war, peace, security, and you would pursue policies that gain you power. You can gain power through things like war, taking over territory. Uh, you can pursue this by trying to destabilize other nations. Remember, if you're only focused on relative power, it doesn't really matter if you're gaining power or if your enemy is losing power. So the U.S. actually does this. We set up military presence in other states. It's all about putting ourselves out there, expressing our power, but also destabilizing 
these other countries. Um, it doesn't even have to be like in that state. But if we have a lot of military bases, say, right along the border with Russia, that destabilizes Russia because Russia is a little less likely to want to pursue certain goals because we have military right there. We can react very quickly. And so the United States in particular pursues this. It raises the possibility of offense, but the U.S. has presence in something like 150 states in the world. There's just under 200 total. So we're talking about 75 maybe a little bit more, 75% of the world, the U.S. has some sort of military presence in. And so we do that. Uh, you can also do things called bait and bleed. This is a tactic where you try to cause two rivals to face off against each other, knock them both down. Buck passing, this is where there's uh, some sort of international issue and you kind of stall and try to bait someone else into stepping in to take care of that issue so you don't have to pay the cost, the cost yourself, but you still benefit from it. I think the common one on this is environmental issues. You know, frequently we try to get other countries to pay for environmental things. This is uh, very common at the international level where you have a lot of small states that benefit from a clean environment, but can't pay. And so they expect countries like China or the United States or countries in the EU to pay for the whole world to clean up the environment, but everybody would still benefit from it. And all of these strategies lead into a couple sub-theories, I'm going to call them. One of the big ones that I want to touch on here is something called balance of power. Balance of power is a really big sub-theory in realism because while realism does look at the world and say, hey, conflict is inevitable because of all these other factors we've already talked about, we don't see conflict 100% of the time. So how do we explain that? And they say... There is this possibility for a temporary peace. They do say it worse would still come, but it's temporary peace when you see power being balanced. Uh, now, not all realists buy into this idea, but a lot of them do. And they basically say that if one state has too high a concentration of power, the whole system becomes destabilized. And so the Cold War for them was perfect because, and this is actually when realism was, was really big. It's still actually pretty big today, but during the Cold War, massive numbers of political scientists were realists. And it was because you had two powers that were more or less equally balanced and the threat of conflict was always very observably present. But as long they say as long as these two powers were balanced, grand war between the major superpowers was held at bay. We did see some proxy wars here and there, Vietnam, Korea, but a realist would say those are just minor skirmishes. We never saw the superpowers go head to head. And so it's a more peaceful world in that sense when there is this balance. But they will say, again, you cannot stay equally balanced. War will inevitably come. Further on this idea then, too, that means if you do see a situation where the United States or another country is unbalanced, right? They're so much stronger than another. Like when the Soviet Union fell, you should see other countries, other weaker countries ally together to balance out the United States. So ally against the United States or against that larger power to balance the power again and bring that peace back. Now, one of the problems with the balance of power is when the Cold War ended, U.S. was only power left. We didn't see that happen. You know, there weren't really any big rival blocks of countries that formed against the United States. Now, you could argue that this was because it was too big of a gap. It was never going to happen. But we actually saw more countries ally with the United States doing something called bandwagoning rather than balancing against the United States. Other people have looked at it and tried to argue that, you know, balancing is traditionally seen as power, but it's not always military power. There's this new concept, just a relatively new concept, called soft balancing. And this is where it kind of accepts the current balance because that gap militarily may be too large, but you try to find ways to seek better outcomes within it. So using non-military 
non-forceful methods of challenging these great powers. So things diplomatically, working through some sort of international organization or institution, maybe using that as a tool, uh, cultural balancing, economic balancing may factor into this as well. And I really mention this to say that even though the end of the Cold War was a pretty big blow to realism, this is still considered one of the premier dominant strains of thought in modern foreign policy. And it's appealing for a variety of reasons. I think there's some really good aspects in the human nature element and the anarchy element. And it's also very appealing because like from an academic pursuit, realism is not really tied to any ideology. It doesn't favor one moral philosophy over another. It doesn't lend itself necessarily more towards Democrats or Republicans. It doesn't consider ideology to be a factor in the behavior of states at the international level. So again, it doesn't really matter who the individual leader is or what party's in power. All it really describes is this underlying quest for self-interest. And a lot of people have really described this as Machiavellian. As I mentioned, Machiavelli has some of the original thoughts on this. I wouldn't consider him a realist per se because the philosophy was not codified or formalized until much later. But the primary focus is very Machiavellian, and it's, it's about increasing your relative power of your country over others. And a lot of that is due to these, this idea of mankind not being inherently benevolent, right? This hu human nature is not inherently good. I don't know if you guys ever watched the TV show Friends, but there's a famous episode where Phoebe tries to go out and prove, I think it's to Joey, that there is such a thing as a selfless good deed. And Joey says, well, no, at the end of the day, it's all about self-interest. There's no such thing as a really, truly selfless good deed. You're either doing it for reputation or to feel good yourself, or you have some sort of long-term goal in mind. And this is because human nature, Joey would argue, as well as some of these realists, that Human nature is self-centered and competitive, as well as very egoistic and egocentric. And again, to like an outsider coming into this, whether you adhere to a different theory or you've never heard this before, you know, realism sometimes sounds very depressing. It's a very bleak mindset. It looks at the world and, and sees selfishness around every corner. It sees this self-centeredness. And most realists would probably agree, to be honest. A realist, again, is not adhering to any sort of moral argument. They're not saying this is how the world should be. They're saying this is just how the world is, and it's important that we know that so that we can work within it. I would even posit that the average realist would say this is not the most optimistic world. There are other optimistic theories out there, but, that's, but those optimistic theories are not how the world is structured. And it's important that we adhere to again, you can hear it in the name, the realist perspective, the real world. This is just how it is. Now, despite all of that, I do want to kind of end the episode by talking about some of the critiques of realism. While realist thought was huge during the Cold War, it dropped off significantly afterwards, but it's still probably the premier thought in foreign policy, but that doesn't mean it's infallible. There are a lot of critiques out there, as you've probably been listening, you can may even be able to come up with some yourself. I would just throw out a few. For instance, there are quite a few cases where we see states that we, at least on the surface, think they might not be acting in self-interest. Things like issuing foreign aid or running rescue missions you know, to save people in a tough situations like they're undergoing a genocide or something like that. The U.S. has done this with the Kurds, with the Yazidis in the Middle East, and we've seen it in other cases too. 
Again, a realist would probably say, no, there's some sort of underlying self-interest, maybe long-term self-interest or reputation or something along those lines. But I would argue this is still a valid critique because on the surface, it, a re running a rescue mission to the Middle East where you may lose your own soldiers to save another country's citizens does not seem to be particularly self-interested. And so realism doesn't do a great job of explaining that. Further, we do tend to see some cases of international cooperation. We see institutions work. Now, how, how much they work, the extent of that is kind of up in the air. You'll see cases like where, the say, the United States went to the UN and asked for permission to invade Iraq over 9-11, uh, but the UN said no, and the US basically went ahead and did it anyway. And there were no real repercussions from that. Uh, we also see cases like uh, during just during the Cold War, again, this is why, when realism was so big, the UN should have theoretically been very active during this period. There were a lot of these local conflicts. Again, Korea, Vietnam were big ones, but you also had other cases across Africa, Southeast Asia. There were several civil wars. And you would think during this time period, an international institution like the UN would be very busy. But we didn't see that. We saw the UN sit by idly, almost impotent, powerless to do anything, because every time they took a step one direction or another, either the United States or the Soviet Union would veto them. And so there were these questions of, well, does the UN actually have any real power in and of itself? Do institutions like this have any real power inherent within them? Or do states ultimately supersede them? Does the real power really lie in the states? Or is there any power in this institution? And a realist would say institutions are merely used by states as tools to achieve some sort of realist end. They don't help promote peace. But as we'll talk about next time, there may be cases where an international institution did help promote peace in some way, maybe providing a platform or just providing a, an area for two countries to come together in a neutral space to talk or anything along those lines. And we can talk about that next time, but I think that may be potentially a valid critique of realism too. The other thing that realism kind of struggles with is this idea, as I mentioned, that war should be inevitable because if human nature is constant, anarchy is constant, conflict therefore is constant, we should continue to see wars at a roughly constant rate. But that's not the case. War is actually becoming less prevalent at the interstate level. We are seeing fewer and fewer wars between states. Now, we are seeing a rise in civil wars within states, so it could be that war is just changing. We're also seeing a rise in things like uh, digital warfare, hacking, uh, maybe drone warfare, and some of these other types of things. So it may be that the definition of war is changing. And again, a realist may point to something like that, but the fact is we do see fewer interstate wars over time, and especially over the last 50 to 100 years, war is becoming a lot less prevalent. And so because of some of these critiques, we have seen a couple other theories pop up over the years, especially post-Cold War, that have sought to try to explain them. Now, they have not taken out realism entirely. As I mentioned, realism is still probably the premier train of thought in international relations and political science. But as these critiques have been developed over the years, we have seen a few challenges rise to realism. And we're going to talk about one of those next time, but you'll have to wait until that next episode to hear all about it. 
As always, find me on social media. I'm on Twitter at Justin R underscore Kinney. Follow me there. Hit me up. I'm happy to continue the conversation there. I'm also on Facebook at J Robert Kinney. That's the name I write fiction novels under. You can find my book Precipice on Amazon. I have a second book that should be coming out sometime this fall. And if you're interested in supporting me, supporting this podcast or advertising on the show, make sure you hit subscribe. Tell your friends about the show. Spread the word. Uh, You can also check out my Patreon account. Or please just shoot me a message and contact me. I'd be happy to talk with you more about that possibility of advertising or something else. In the meantime, though, and until next episode, this is Nutshell Politics. I'm Justin Kinney, and I'm out in three, two, one. 